Well, good morning. I'm Susie Everett, and I'm happy to be here this morning to share some of what I've been learning in the book of Hebrews this year, particularly from dwelling on this eighth chapter. And you can turn there now if you want to follow in a little bit. I will read it. When I knew what chapter I'd be speaking on, I was a little fearful at first because I taught on the covenants in the spring, and I thought, maybe I have nothing else to say about this subject. But I was also excited for a couple of reasons. One is that I get to correct a mistake I made early in that last lecture. And usually I don't listen to my lectures afterwards, but I happened to hear the first few minutes and was um, shocked, horrified, by what I heard myself say. Um, So this could be a reflection of the perfectionist in me, but I get to clarify it now. Um, What I heard myself say was, Jesus on the cross was God keeping his side of the covenant. No. No. I I probably could have edited that, but I want to make sure that you all get to hear me say it today. Jesus on the cross was God keeping our side of the covenant. Our side. Okay? Okay. Anyway, at the risk of sounding immodest, if you want to go on the uh, website ever and listen to that lecture or any of our lectures, the last three years of Habits lectures are on the Zionsville Fellowship website. Um, Particularly if you weren't part of our Deuteronomy study and covenants are a new thing to you, or you just want to brush up, the history um, of the covenants is something I covered in that lecture last March, and certainly in more depth than we're going to today. Um, We can even get a CD for you, as a matter of fact. But the other reason I was glad to speak about this again is that I appreciated so much the change in my own perspective that studying the covenants brought, and I wanted to spend more time on an attribute of God, attribute of God that is so very present in the covenants. Um, even if you tend to think of covenant as something dry and not interesting, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and it's often overlooked. I was so struck by this heart of love that I wanted to explore that more with you. Well, you will have noticed that the chapter is largely made up of an excerpt from Jeremiah, and it's been noted that it is the longest Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And that's significant. I think anytime um, we see the Old Testament quoted there, because we can always use the reminder that the Bible is one continuous story, can't we? Many Christians today like to focus on the New Testament exclusively and tell themselves that the Old Testament is only important for Jews, if at all. You know, miracles and wrath and all that stuff that we don't, we don't believe in or we don't want to think about. But the New Testament makes no sense, and indeed Jesus himself makes no sense without the Old Testament backing it up. There is Old Testament quoted in all but one of the New Testament books, and Jesus himself frequently referenced the Old Testament, didn't he? Um, And I was reminded of an analogy that Drew Hunter used last uh, Advent season. He he compared the Bible to a Christmas tree, and the New Testament would be a cut tree, right? You see the the beauty of that. But but a live tree includes the Old Testament roots, if you can envision that. And I thought that was so important, because actually we all know what happens to a cut Christmas tree eventually, right? All right, well, let's read Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the days when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Because much of what is in chapter 8 has been or will be covered well in other lectures and lessons, including the great high priest and the tabernacle, I chose to focus on Jeremiah, the covenants, and what all of this means for us, and that quality of God's, his love, that we can really not think about too much. It's the basis for his reaching out to us in this relationship called a covenant. So let's start by thinking about the author, not of Hebrews, but of Jeremiah. And I was assisted in this by Pastor Edgar Momo, who spoke recently on a recent Sunday morning about Jeremiah as a prophet and a reformer, who was called at a young age and led a difficult life. And this was about 2,500 years ago. Persecuted, rejected, and taken from his homeland. He persevered, however, in proclaiming the message God gave him for the Jews, a message on sin and covenant infidelity, as well as God's long-term plan to restore people for himself. The ESV Study Bible calls Jeremiah a biblical theologian who knew the scriptures and stressed their themes, including the nature of God as sovereign, redemptive, and faithful, and the nature of man as idolatrous and sinful. He was writing in roughly the same time period as Isaiah and Ezekiel, and like them, he delivers the good news that a covenant is coming, a new one, one that will be based on a faithful God rather than the faithfulness of man. Thank goodness. Well, there's a temptation to think that, like many think the Old Testament's not relevant for them, that old covenants, old covenants are not relevant, and that would be wrong again. As Edith Schaefer wrote, Christianity is Jewish. This is our religious heritage, and more importantly, there's so much to be learned from those covenants about who God is and who we are, how he wants to relate to us, how he wants us to live, and how much he loves us. So definition of a covenant. There are, there are many. The ESV Study Bible calls it the way that, um, let's see, it says a covenant is the way God describes his relationship with his people and how he reveals himself. So his relationship with us comes through covenant. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs describes um, the contrast between a covenant and a contract. He says a contract is when two people make an exchange to the benefit of each, but a covenant is more like a marriage where the parties come together in trust and love. A contract is about me, but a covenant is about we. And he uses the phrase bonds of belonging. 
I like that. Covenants promised over and over from God to his people a place, a people, that fruitfulness he talks about, and his presence. You see those three things over and over, place, people, and presence. And John Piper says that he would offer as the definition, when God makes a covenant, he reveals his own job description and signs it. In almost every case, he comes to the covenant partner, lays his job description out, and says, this is how I will work for you with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. If you will love me as I am, cleave to me and trust me to keep my word. Sounds a lot like marriage, doesn't it? We'll get back to that. Well, John T. Rhodes wrote, Covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them one united story, blazing through the Old Testament like a firework before exploding into full color in the coming of Christ. So we're going to blaze through these covenants kind of quickly right now ourselves, starting with the covenant of works or creation or life, and many of these have different names. But this is Adam. It doesn't use the word covenant, but it's implied in the, in the text. God creates man. He blesses man. He tells him to be fruitful, and he gives him dominion over creation. Next, we have the universal covenant with Noah, where God just promises not to destroy the earth again, again gives Noah dominion and tells him to be fruitful. Then Abraham, the covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. God promises a land, countless offspring, and himself as their God. He also indicates through that ceremony in Abraham's vision that he will keep the human side of the covenant as well as his own, and the nations will be blessed through Israel. This one is called the covenant of redemption because from here on out, we're not depending on people to get it right. God has promised that he will, he will fulfill the covenant. It will, it will turn out all right. Then Moses, the Mosaic old covenant that happened at Sinai, where the um, promises made earlier are administered, and all the promises are extended to Israel that were made to uh, the, the, the forerunners, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Messianic covenant, we have David promised that his offspring will be an eternal king. And we see this happy ending coming closer and closer as we go through the covenants, right? And then the new or everlasting covenant, as it's called in Hebrews, where Jesus not only fulfills the requirements for perfect obedience, but takes on our guilt and our shame, dying on the cross, The Holy Spirit is promised as a helper to the covenant partners, that would be us, enabling us to love and obey God as he commanded. Drew uh, Hunter spoke on the new covenant, you might remember a few weeks ago, toward the end of his lecture, and he said that the problem with the old covenant was the problem with the people, which is they didn't really love and obey God. But now we have hearts that are able to do that. He's helped us. We're not perfect, he said, but we're persevering, fully forgiven and transformed in our hearts. I have a couple more quotes here for you. Warren Wiersbe said, We must not conclude that the existence of the new covenant means that the old covenant was wrong or that the law has no ministry today. Both covenants were given by God. Both covenants were given for people's good. Both covenants had blessings attached to them. 
If Israel had obeyed the terms of the Old Covenant, God would have blessed them, and they would have been ready for the coming of their Messiah. The New Covenant does not depend on man's faithfulness to God, but on God's faithful promise to men. And John T. Rhodes wrote, The Spirit is bringing life and holiness. What we are seeing fulfilled is God's New Covenant promise that He would put His Spirit in His people to make sure they obeyed and lived faithful lives. We don't have to create our own holiness from scratch. We can't, can we? We need to trust Jesus and drink in the ability to live a holy life from Him through the Spirit. That's what Rachel was talking about. And how does He give us that new heart? Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. He circumcises our hearts. He gives us hearts of flesh. Remember that line from our lesson? He sets us apart and gives us the Holy Spirit. And just as a side note, that word heart, uh, the Hebrew word for that is used in different ways, but it can mean the heart, it can mean the mind, the understanding, the center of a person, the soul, the will, or the inner man. It's good to know that he's in our center, isn't it? John T. Rhodes uh, wrote this too, and this would fall under the significance on your outline. Recovering a more covenantal way of thinking with its emphasis on union with Christ will help us stay balanced. On the one hand, when I remember that I now share Jesus' status, justified and fully pleasing in God's sight, I can rejoice that no matter how bad I've been today, God still loves me as his child and will accept me into heaven. My justification is unchangeable, unspoilable, and, for that matter, unimprovable. He also, however, sees my sanctification and will assess how serious I've been about trying to be faithful to his covenant. Am I repenting, believing, battling sin, and walking in holiness? It's good to have the help of the Holy Spirit. Another result of the new covenant is hope. Hope for us and hope to share with others. Um, I was reading a book not long ago, called Summer Before the War. Some of you may have read that by Helen Simonson. But she, uh, there's a scene in that book where a young girl is trying to convince a young man to propose to her before he goes off to war. And she says, if only we had some definite hope to which we might cling, it would warm our darkest moments of fear. Well, it didn't work for her. I can't disagree, though. I think God's promises give us hope, an anchor for the soul from our memory verse. And they can certainly warm our darkest moments of fear, right? She, in that scene, was picturing an engagement to be an assurance of a happy ending for her, right? She's getting, she wants to get through this long, dark separation, this challenging time of war, with the promise of a wedding at the end, picturing herself during a beautiful celebration when all is well and her love is secure, no doubt in a lovely white dress. And that's actually what we have to look forward to because our faithful, good, and powerful God offers better promises than the ones in the previous covenants. Andrew Peterson wrote, we believe something has happened, but something is still going to happen. And the longing is what reminds us that the story is not over. We long for something better, and God's promises give us hope. Well, moving on, I wanna convince you that covenant and God's love are inseparable ideas. From our lesson, there were a couple of verses. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
and Ephesians 3.19 to comprehend and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That one kind of cracks me up. We're supposed to know something that surpasses knowledge. That really would take divine help, wouldn't it? But these are New Testament verses, and we know that many people see love in the New Testament, but not the old. And I had a conversation on Thanksgiving Day. Um, My uncle brought it up. He was um, studying for a message he was about to give himself. He's not a pastor, but he he does give messages often in his little church. Um, And in studying the Old and New Testaments, he's concluded that God tried everything and finally tried love, sending Jesus. I tried not to hyperventilate. I tried to be winsome and calm, and actually, it was, it was a very short conversation, and I, we didn't have any kind of an argument, but I thought, well, it's true that God gave several opportunities for a fresh start, right? Adam, Noah, Abraham, but love was always present, and it's mentioned many times in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself is pointed to over and over again in those scriptures, right? Um, I did forget to mention Luke 24, 27, where Jesus shows them in the scriptures, and that would be the Old Testament, all concerning himself. Um, but now I'm getting off track a little here. Some of the words that, have des- that describe God's love, sacrificing, genuine, pure, and I'm sure you can't write all these down, but if some of them jump out at you, you might want to. Patience, eternal, perfect, unchangeable, gentle, unconditional, personal, unstoppable. This is who we are studying. Abigail Dodds wrote, unless we are convinced of his love for us and our complete security in him, come disease and death, hell and high water, we will not withstand the torrents of life. And unless we are convinced that his love for us is all of grace, not works, we will not be humble or holy as we ought. If you remember, John T. Rhodes said that covenantal perspective would help us stay balanced. And Dodd seemed to be saying the same thing about trusting in his love. These things bring balance to our lives. Well, a word that is used in the Old Testament hundreds of times is hesed, that's the Hebrew word. And it's in our ESV usually translated as steadfast love. But in your own Bibles, it might say um, loving kindness, mercy, grace, unfailing love, covenant love. In Nehemiah 1.5, it's written, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And those are often linked with those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 13:5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Solomon, David, Moses, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, and even Job and others used that word to describe God. Steadfast love. God uses it to describe himself as well. The Vines Dictionary says that that word includes the ideas of strength, steadfastness, and love, that that all goes together. It is not only obligation, but generosity. Not only loyalty, but mercy. And R.C. Sproul said about Hesed, which he translates loyal love, God is for his people and will never cease to be for them. Our calling is to reflect that reality. 
our loyalty and our love grounded in our loyal love toward him who loved us loyally first ought to be toward both what it is we believe and those with whom we believe it. Loyal love remains faithful to both the word of God and the people of God. And I couldn't, um, well, again, if, you, if you're preparing, you often see, see uh, these concepts everywhere you look. But last night, um, before bed, I finished the last few pages of a very long novel called Lonesome Dove. And many of you will remember that miniseries that was on maybe decades ago now. I never saw that, but I had this Western novel recommended to me. And though I don't read Westerns, um, it's not hard to see why. It is, it is truly an amazing book. But the thing that struck me in it was more than once they're making this long trek from uh, Texas to Montana with a lot of cattle. And several times they ride off for days at a time or weeks to do something. And in one case, it's to rescue a young girl who's been kidnapped by Native Americans. And in another case, it's to catch horse thieves to get their horses back and hang them. And so just what struck me was this persevering determination to go rescue or to enact justice. And either way, um, I learned something from that, just this idea that it, that it could be so uh, steadfast, I guess, love. And of course, we know that God's love comes with his justice and his wrath and his mercy, right? It's all together. Andrew Murray wrote, as one of his redeemed ones, you are his delight, and all his desire is to you, with the longing of a love that is stronger than death, and that many waters cannot quench. His heart yearns after you, seeking your fellowship and your love. Were it needed, he could die again to possess you. His life is bound up in yours. You are to him inexpressibly more indispensable and precious than you can ever know. You are one with himself. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Those are Jesus' words, right? What a love. Next, let's focus on that longing for the relationship with us that God wants to have that is seen throughout Scripture. In fact, maybe more so in the Old Testament, as he pleads with his people to come to him and experience the blessings of the covenant relationship to obey and love and follow, to cling to him. Remember drawing near? There's research that claims to predict marital success by observing couples and noting how often they turn toward or turn away from their partner. Surely this is also true for God. And Rachel summed that up beautifully before she did the song this morning. He encourages us by sending the Holy Spirit, by abiding with us so close and writing his law on our minds and hearts. He's made it so convenient, hasn't he? We don't have to go to a temple. We just need to stop ignoring him. We need to turn toward instead of away from him. He longs for us. Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and keep my commandments. In Song of Solomon, my beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. My beloved is mine, and I am his. In Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. That's the love behind these covenants. 
Well, longing and invitation really go together, right? Because inviting is what we do when we long to have someone join us, and God is no different. Isaiah 55 reads, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And you can bet I was excited when I read that because it had everything going. Covenant, steadfast love, and the invitation to come to everyone who thirsts. Jesus said in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There's no doubt about his intention for us, is there? We've been invited, and we can bring guests. Marriage was mentioned there. The Revelation verse had the bride in it, and that's where we're going next. In a recent uh, sermon, Drew Hunter shared Luther, Martin Luther's illustration of a king who marries a prostitute and exchanges his righteousness for her sin. And you'll remember that if you attend CF. He said, God is not a judge who declares us merely as righteous. He's also a husband who makes us his own. This is Jesus Christ who wins us to himself and gives us his righteousness and clothes us in it. Our excerpt from Jeremiah 31 leaves out some of the words from verse 32 in the original, and they are these. When it says, my covenant that they broke, it goes on to say, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And that imagery is all through the Bible as well. The Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and Revelation, and others. And Jesus refers to himself as a bridegroom. So does John the Baptist. So that metaphor, coupled with the invitation, seems to imply a proposal. We are invited to be a covenant partner, to be his ultimate bride. Revelation 19, 6, starts, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation 3 says, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. While I don't think white garments refer to a wedding dress like you or I might imagine, they do imply purity and holiness, right? Well, Lydia Brownback wrote a Hosea study, and she says, God woos his people with terms of endearment. The old covenant that God established with his people was designed to reflect the love, fidelity, and exclusivity of marriage. This finds its fulfillment in the new covenant, in Christ, the husband of his bride, 
the church. Once the Lord's delightful bride, Israel has betrayed that intimate and privileged union, committing acts of spiritual adultery. But punishment is not ultimately what the Lord wants for his people. He desires them to return to him and be blessed, renewed in covenant blessings. God will not forsake his people even though they have rejected him, and in his love he will go to great lengths to win back their hearts. Some of those words in Hosea are, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. He will make a covenant, he says, that will result in safety and peace. In verse 19 of Hosea 2, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Tim Keller wrote, This is the secret that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another, that when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And that sort of flips the metaphor upside down, but it also makes me think of the copy and shadow that were mentioned in our passage for today, marriage being a copy and shadow of Christ and the church. I wonder if it's as easy for men as it is for women to appreciate this imagery. Many of us really enjoy romance and beauty and dressing up and special events, right? Flowers. Men, maybe not so much, but um, I have a room full of women, so that's not my problem today. I think we can easily think about that image of the church, the bride, being presented to her husband Jesus in her spotless, sinless purity. And he's not saying, till death do us part, he's already died to make her his own. And that's breathtaking and amazing and wonderful to think about. It's very romantic in the chivalrous sense of the word, and it's already been done for you and me, ladies. So the longing and the invitation and the marriage imagery can be summed up once again by his great love. When you think covenant, think love. God has many attributes, and again, we don't want to ignore all the others. We never want to say that God is love if we mean that's all he is, that's all that matters. But if it's the first aspect of his nature you think about, I don't think you can go wrong. Elise Fitzpatrick wrote, it's essential for us to think about God's love today because it is only his love that will grant us the joy that will strengthen our hearts, the courage that will embolden us in our fight against sin, and the assurance that will enable us to open up our lives to him. If we're not completely convinced that his love is ours right now, fully and unalterably ours, we'll always hide in the shadows focusing on our performance, fearing his wrath. If we don't consciously live in the light of his love, the gospel will be secondary, virtually meaningless, and Jesus Christ will fade into insignificance. If you neglect to focus on God's love for you in Christ, your Christianity will soon be reduced to a program of self-improvement. There's that balance again, right? Well, I have one more quote. John T. Rhodes wrote, Being under the covenant of grace, not works, means that every single action God takes towards me, without exception, will ultimately be an act of love. The end is better than the beginning, and when he does come back and bring in the final chapter of covenant history, we will be at the beginning of another story, far greater than anything we've yet imagined. So, God loves us. He loves each one of you as individuals, and we always want to acknowledge the preciousness of each person, but not stop there. 
That fact should give us confidence, but also humility, because we aren't intended to stand alone. We're part of a body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, something far bigger than ourselves. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll end by listening to a a beautiful song. I want you to hear the words and trust that this is how Jesus sees you, but I also hope we intend to share and confirm that, affirm that in others, because it's not us individually walking down that aisle to meet him, right? It's the church, and we want to invite others to be a part of that beautiful, ultimate, promised ending slash beginning to the story. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, Um, I pray each woman here would know without a doubt how much she is loved by you and that we would each dwell on that during this Christmas season and that the joy that comes from that knowledge would overflow and touch those around us. Thank you for your promises. We know that if you were not so good and powerful and faithful, those promises would be meaningless, but you will bring them to pass. For all the promises of God find their yes in you, Son of God, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the new covenant and for fulfilling it on our behalf. Thank you that you've called and chosen each woman here to be a partner in that covenant with you. Only because you draw us to you can we partake in your blessings. And only because Jesus gave his life to redeem us can we call ourselves your children. It's in his very precious name that I pray. Amen. Yeah. 